what's up, everybody? It's Jesse, and you are listening to List It, a show where me and a guest list and rank some of our favorite things in pop culture. And this week, I got a really, really great show. I am so excited for today's show. Uh, not only do I have on one of my favorite people, my good buddy Tyler Huckabee, but we're also talking about one of my favorite filmmakers, Christopher Nolan. Now, a lot of you guys probably already know that his latest sort of sci-fi epic, Tenet, has been slowly kind of rolling out as theaters reopen. And we thought now would be a great time to talk about some of his other movies uh, that he's done over his, over his career. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with the work of Christopher Nolan, uh, you've probably seen some of his movies. He he did the, the Dark Knight trilogy. He did uh, big blockbusters like Inception and in- Interstellar. But he also did a couple of cool indies early in his career, like Memento and Following. So we felt like now was a great time as people are watching his latest movie to go back and look at some of the, the the cool movies in his catalog. Now, I will say this. If you haven't seen some of these movies, there are some sort of spoilery conversations, but uh, all the movies have been out for a while, so we felt like it's okay to kind of uh, talk about some of them in detail. But if, you, if we start talking about a movie in the Christopher Nolan catalog that you haven't seen, that you plan on seeing, and you don't want any sort of details spoiled, just go ahead and scroll ahead to the next movie. We each have a lot of fun breaking down our top five Christopher Nolan movies. Without further ado, here is my good buddy Tyler Huckabee and I breaking down the work of Christopher Nolan. Tyler, welcome to the show, man. Hey, it's really good. Jesse, it's always good to be recording a podcast with, with you, man. It's a, it's, it's like old and it's times. fun. Isn't it fun? In the, in the, you know, we live in divisive times, obviously. There's a That's lot right. going on out there. And arguing about pop culture feels like, I know the stakes could not be higher for this show, which I think is sort of a tagline. <laughs> but, but compared to like arguing with people about like, whether or not the government is poisoning vaccines for us or, or some of the other things that I find myself frequently arguing in in my day job, this feels relatively low stakes. Yeah, exactly. Like I've been in enough arguments in the last few weeks about uh, people who feel like the strong arm of tyranny has manifested itself in a cloth you have to wear on your face for five yeah, minutes exactly. while you go into yeah. the drugstore, that it's really fun to argue <laughs> about something that doesn't really matter. And that's kind of the crux of the show. And Tyler, before we jump into the movies, because like I said, how the format works is Tyler and I both bring our, our top five things in any category. We're talking about Christopher Nolan movies. And Tyler, before we jump in, and uh, you can tell us what your fifth favorite Christopher Nolan movie is, I want to talk about him and like the interesting place he sort of occupies in in, uh, modern Hollywood because there are very few auteurs left, you know? I, I feel like partly because of, like, the, the death of the monoculture where, mm-hmm, it, you know, sure. th- it, it used to be one of those things where everyone was aware of what was coming out that weekend, and if you wanted to see a movie, you had to go to the movie theater. You know, then, uh, you know, the advent of, of VHS and, and Blockbuster, you know, that monoculture mm-hmm. started breaking mm-hmm. down, but now with streaming... There are tons of filmmakers. There are tons of interesting movies coming out all the time. Uh, and there are very few, you know, straight up shared experiences that people will travel to the movies for other than, you know, like a Marvel movie or something. But Christopher Nolan, who mostly does original stories, I mean, there's been a couple that have been based on relatively obscure works of fiction, kind of stands on his own. Tyler, tell me your thoughts kind of about the place that he occupies right now. So I think Christopher Nolan has uh, has built his lane in a few areas. Uh, as a as a technical filmmaker, I think he's he's uh, one of the few uh, 
he really has resisted a lot of the democratization of the filmmaking process mm-hmm. that you've seen in recent years. Sort of the lo-fi, mumblecore, buzzy, indie. Like those are the movies. Those movies get a lot of attention from people, yeah. and and they're very well, they're critically well regarded, and they meet the the Zoomer ethos, right? They feel no matter how much work actually went into them there's sort of a charm to movies that don't look like a lot of work went yeah. into them. People like that uh, kind of aw shucks attitude from even their big temple pictures, like a Marvel movie. That's not Christopher Nolan's thing. He is a very, he's a, he's a capital S serious filmmaker yeah. who puts yeah. a lot of time and attention into the craft of movies. And I think another thing that he does, and, and I realized this while I was working on my rankings is that no, as, as gifted as he is, and he, he's a very gifted storyteller, very gifted craftsman, he seems to almost always bite off a little more than he mm-hmm. can chew. He like he yeah. always swings big. And as much as I like Nolan a lot, and I really do, I think he has very few movies that you wouldn't say, uh, that you wouldn't call a, f- a really good but flawed movie. Like almost sure. everything that he has has something in it that like really didn't work. But you almost admire it more for that because it didn't work because it was lazy or stupid. It's almost because he tried too hard. He went too big. Yeah. And uh, and that's not something that you see from many movies that have the kind of price tags that Christopher Nolan's movies do because Hollywood basically now will cut whatever check Nolan wants, as we've seen many times yeah. over now, especially with this most recent one with Tenet. Yeah, and and the, and the cool thing is he he loves the art of filmmaking as much as he loves the art of storytelling. You know, uh-huh. most of his movies involve screenwriting collaborations with his brother Jonathan Nolan, and they do tell interesting stories. But part of the fun of what Christopher Nolan does is what is the huge set pieces, you know? Yeah, and, and he yeah, also sure, he's sure. great at picking out like like Hans Zimmer to do a score. He loves, like I said, it's not just filmmaking. It's like an old school style of, uh, or not just storytelling, but an old school style of filmmaking that is meant to be seen first on the big screen. Like they, Christopher Nolan, it would shock. It would be shocking if he did a direct to Netflix or a direct to Hulu, it, you know, happen. his movie. Yeah, it won't it happen. Won't happen. It, yeah. It, the it, worst it, possible is, filmmaker you could have for a pandemic is Christopher Nolan because yeah. he will die. He will eat the final reel of his movie before he would let it come out on Apple TV plus, you know, it, it, as a, yeah. as a direct option. And, and that's why I love it because like when I was, you know, I, calling him an auteur, I feel like that's fair because the, the, I was trying to think of like, who is like a modern analog and I couldn't really, he's, I wouldn't say he's like yeah. our generation Spielberg. It's almost like Charlie Kaufman meets Steven Spielberg and a little bit in his, in his weaker films of like an M night Shyamalan, because he loves those kind of twists and sort of, he likes to attempt to blow your mind, but he does it with, even if, even if the twist you, you, you saw coming, the visual visually his movies are so good he has that kind of spielbergian you know uh, eye for huge visuals that they're always interesting famously doesn't use a second director unit ever yeah. always does his own shots uh very very famously rarely has b-roll uh rarely mm-hmm. has cut scenes uh people always you know people wanted for like a 10-year anniversary of the dark night they were hoping for what what some of the heath ledger material that you had that you left on the on the cutting room floor and he said I really don't do it. Uh, I, yeah. d- if I shoot it, I want it in the movie. And if I don't want it and it's not in the script, if it's, I don't bother shooting it. If I don't think it's going to make that final cut, which is obviously extremely frustrating for big studios, uh, except for he's proven how many times now that his movies 
are going to make you some money. So I think they've been willing to give him more than probably any other director working right now, an extremely long leash when it comes to what kind of movies they'll allow him to shoot. You really don't see, and you can smell this almost every other tentpole, the studio tinkering, the edits, the, the, in a way that sometimes makes them better potentially. uh, But it feels very much movie making by committee. A lot of times Nolan's movies have never felt that way. Yeah. And the, the other thing is his commitment to natural effects. You know, he's sort of like yeah, the opposite yeah. of like the Russo brothers or or some of these filmmakers that are really reliant on creating worlds with CGI. And look, I, I don't have an issue with CGI, but when you see a car crash in a Christopher Nolan movie, he crashed a car for that, you know, yeah. but it, <laughs> but he does also have that Coen brothers things where he doesn't waste tape. He doesn't waste film like mm-hmm. what you the final product is how he originally envisioned it. And I think he is a, he'll probably be sort of the last of his kind there. I don't he may think, be. I don't think you're going to see, especially post COVID, that sort of enormous budget filmmaking uh, very soon. Again, it, it doesn't, it's yeah. becoming less and less realistic to make movies for the theater going experience, the IMAX only movie experience. And uh, Nolan had the chance to work his way up through the, at a time, as we, we might call like peak budget Hollywood yeah. as it could end up being in the future. And I don't know that we're going to be getting, obviously people will throw a lot of money at a Marvel movie, but those are not, you don't pull an auteur in for a Marvel movie. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, well, all right, I want to jump into the list and, and real quick for, for listeners, here's how it works. My guest, uh, in this case, Tyler, will go first and he will go through uh, number five through number four. If one of his is on my list as well, I'll talk about the, the, the film as well and where it ranks and any overlap uh, of my list we'll, we'll talk about after Tyler goes through his. So, with that said, Tyler, what is your fifth favorite movie in the Christopher Nolan canon? All right, so for number five, and I switched around. There were a lot of movies, you know, there's not that many yeah. movies to pick from, but a lot of movies were at my number five spot because that's the final cutoff. But, uh, but and I, fi- I actually edited it a little bit just before we started recording, but I decided to go for number five, and I feel pretty good about this. I went with Dunkirk. Oh, okay, okay. That, Dunkirk, I have a, this is going to be, this is going to be probably surprising to people. Dunkirk didn't make my top five. It's not because I didn't think it was an impressive film. It's just because, I mean, we're talking about Christopher Nolan. Make your case of why it deserves a spot in the top five. Okay, so Dunkirk, here's what I think Dunkirk did that I would say, and I mentioned this about, uh, about I mentioned this earlier, Dunkirk was a swing. Dunkirk was mm-hmm. a huge, uh, enormous, in terms of, in terms of craft, in terms of three, uh, three separately linear plot lines moving at different speeds, that is a very difficult thing to pull off for a movie the size of Dunkirk with the sort of money and cast that Dunkirk has. And I actually think he did a great job with it. I would say yeah. this is one of his huge swings that really connected. And at least for my part, I don't think for many other people, I didn't have a tough time following it, even if yeah. I don't even totally know how to explain what he did on a podcast like this one. You know, you, you can hear yeah. me trying to kind of struggling. If you've seen Dunkirk, you're aware that we're talking about three storylines that take place over differing periods of time, but that involve the uh, the, the rescue of the ships of Dunkirk during World War One in on, uh, in England, and um, and I think it really connected on that level, even if it was in some ways maybe a little more of a modest Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah. It felt a little less, uh, in some ways, a little more narrow in scope, just by very nature of the fact that it was a, a historical moment. 
and uh, and it had a, a smaller cast. And I'm sure there were a lot of things that were very difficult about filming it. You can see some of, and some of the practical effects. Like yeah. they had to dunk uh, huge numbers of men in water and almost drown them uh, on the on actual ocean water. But um, but I really think the whole thing works cohesively together. Uh, as a, even if it doesn't reach the same highs as the other movies on this list, I don't think it has any real lows. So that's why it's in the top five for me. And, and, and even though it didn't make my top five, I definitely appreciate it because, look, the, it's hard to make a war movie that stands out. And uh-huh. Dunkirk came around out at this, around the same time as, like, 1917. And 1917, obviously, is a, you know, widely regarded movie. But, if, but I will probably never watch that movie again, That's right? But, you know, like, it, it was entertaining and, and you know— how they they tried to simulate this one shot, you know, was was interesting. But it's not like, hey, let's go watch uh, uh, 1917 tonight. <laughs> Dunkirk is one that I would come back to because it's interesting, like you said, the way that Christopher Nolan defies conventional storytelling to take something that is conventional, like a war movie, and not necessarily turn it on its head, but maybe turn it on its side so you see it from a different perspective. There are two really fin- two terrific moments in Dunkirk that really stuck with me that I think elevated it to the top when I was thinking about it, the top five spot. One of them is the moment, which even though if you know your history books, you know it's coming, you know the ships are going to arrive to help yeah. get the to, to help get the rest of the the British Navy away. Um, but the movie was so tense and so stressful that I, in the movie theater, I got a little, I got some tears in my eyes when it yeah. showed up because it was such a relief to see them coming through. Your weekend sailors, not the bloody navy. You should be at home. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. And then uh, the other one is that final long shot uh, from the, from the excellent cinematographer Roger Deakins, who captured Tom Hardy's plane slowly coasting down along the beach. Probably the probably like top to bottom, the most beautiful thing Christopher Nolan has ever filmed. And yeah. it was, I thought it was really excellent. And, uh, and those are the two things that, as I was weighing between this one and a few other movies for the top five spot, uh, that's what really catapulted them over the edge. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a solid choice. Like I said, didn't make my top five, but that's not what I'm going to argue with you about. I, 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 I struggled with that one as well. All right, Tyler, uh, we got Dunkirk uh, five. What do you have at your number four spot? So number four, and this one, I, I, this might be a little bit of a controversial spot. This was probably not going to be a lot of people's top five. Um, okay. but it is on my top five. I went, or my number four is Batman Begins. Oh, Begins. Uh, you know, uh, obviously Dark Knight's going to make any Christopher Nolan movie. Sure. Tell me why you put Batman Begins in the top So five. I went with Begins because uh, for sort of similar reasons, actually, as Dunkirk, it feels like a more modest movie, obviously a uh, not quite as, as thematically rich as either The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises, a uh, much more conventional superhero movie. But I think it's important to remember that at the time when this movie came out, there was no such thing really as a conventional superhero movie. And the Batman franchise had gone belly up just a few years earlier with the George Clooney, uh, Christopher O'Donnell uh, Batman 
uh, Batman and Robin, which was directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, so this was a and this <laughs> like was an, that just leaned into the camp too. Yeah, you know? that was but, a completely that was a very yeah. campy. Uh, that was definitely a swing on its own right. It had it had Arnold Schwarzenegger in it for crying out loud, <laughs> but maybe not a successful swing. Yeah, this one Batman Begins was a real risk for a studio. It, this was a time when superhero movies, especially coming off of some of the the goofball antics of like a Spider Man. People didn't really, Batman didn't really occupy a very serious place. And he was not seen as a real contender for a winning film franchise. Nobody, Christian Bale, kind of an unknown player coming off of American Psycho, didn't really know he was not seen as a big Hollywood star at the time. And um, and there were some misses in it, like not everything works, but Katie Holmes, I think probably her performance in it is one of the things that just hasn't aged very well. But to go into that movie and see somebody take Batman as seriously as Christopher Nolan did and reading a little bit about the history of the movie. Uh, one thing that I read was that he started with the, uh, with the Batmobile, which isn't mm. called the Batmobile in the movie, of course, but it's yeah. the big tank. The, the, I think they call it the tumbler in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first thing they built for it. And he said, that's the anchor of the whole movie. No, no fancy gadgets, no cool little set, no little wings or fire coming out the back. We're going to make this as grounded and realistic and not flashy as possible. And, uh, and I, think he delivered that and he also had some really great moments some of the stuff with the dad i think mm-hmm. came together really well michael kane's performance as alfred i think is really underrated in those movies he brings a lot of emotion and feeling and he clearly he really loves bruce wayne and, and feels extreme an extreme amount of protection over him as he's trying to grapple with what's this crazy thing his sort of adopted son is picking up and trying to do and uh and it just it looks cool, man. The, yeah. the, the costume, there's so many great little moments in there. And I think for, uh, for a lot of people who grew up, their only real connection to a cinematic Batman was either George Clooney or the 60s TV show. This is the first time you see a Batman that really felt like, oh man, this guy's awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, that, and I'm glad you brought that up because I will say this, Batman Begins is not on my list. So I'm over uh, to our crossover, but you know, I, I know you're a big superhero fan. I grew up, you know, as a kid watching the uh, like the Adam West series, and sure. as I was so young watching it that you're only half aware that it's that it's camp, that it's almost right. satirical. But then I, when Batman the Animated Series came out, when I was mm. you know a little bit really older, great, really great series, still hold. I, you did a deep, you, you did a second run on that recently, like in I the did. last yeah, couple of years, yeah. right? And, and, you know, and you get introduced to like Frank Miller's vision for Batman, which, which I know that, that, that's who Christopher Nolan kind of took some cues from, right? He, he took, yeah, from less from the Dark Knight Returns, which is the really famous Christopher or the really famous Frank Miller one, and more from a story called Batman Year One, which Frank yeah. Miller wrote about the first year of Batman and really borrowed, especially from that series' decision to make Commissioner Gordon a sort of equal protagonists, uh, yeah. a story about two men and their different ways to try to save Gotham, one through the law and one through extrajudicial means, like dressing yeah. up like a bat and punching people's lights out. Yeah, and, and it, it was really comfortable. And this is something that Christopher Nolan has done throughout. You know, it, it's present in a lot of his movies. It, it was very comfortable uh, wrestling with, you know, that movie particularly with fear and how you can weaponize yeah. fear. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's comfortable wrestling with wrestling with big themes, but still. Uh, being a lot of fun. You've traveled the world to understand the criminal mind and conquer your fears. But 
A criminal is not complicated. What you really fear is inside yourself. You fear your own power. You fear your anger, the drive to do great or terrible things. So, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, like, you, it, it gives you something to think about, but also it's a Christopher Nolan movie, so there's going to be giant set pieces and, and very memorable scenes. So, I, I again, I can see why it's on the list. It didn't make mine. Uh, but, uh, I think it would but, make a lot of people's. I think, it's, yeah. I think it's probably my hottest take on this list. All right. Hey, fair enough, man. That's what it's all about. All right. Uh, so, Dunkirk, Batman Begins. What is your number three? The number three I went for. The one, like you said, this is on everybody's list. Dark Knight. Yeah. Okay. Number three I'm me. surprised it's all the way down number three. I feel like yeah, that's an t- easy top two. Okay. I, I, I figured. I, I'll say this: Dark Knight is number is on number two on my list. So okay. so you have Dark Knight number three. All right. They uh, defend defend Dark Knight at, at number three. Well, I, well, you could anybody could talk about the Dark Knight all day long, right? Yeah. It's, uh, um, my uh, my personal connection to this movie was I was living in Chicago when they were filming The Dark Knight. Oh wow! And uh, and so I remember being uh, being there, and and you would see like the film the the crews going around. I saw Heath Ledger, uh, rest in peace, oh, Heath. Cool. Uh, yeah. But I saw him outside of a, a hotel I was working at at the time, and uh, and it was very you could feel the excitement in Chicago in a way I'd never really experienced with even movies that had been filming in Chicago before everybody was really excited that, you know, cause we were in Gotham city and yeah. Batman's here and it was something people just talked about. And so I went and saw it at the opening, the opening night down on Navy pier at midnight. Um, and I'll probably never forget the experience of walking out of that movie and just never having seen anything quite like it. Um, the obviously the, I think the big takeaway that everybody remembers is Ledger's performance which yeah. uh, which we'll talk about because I want to hear your take on that one too. We need to yeah. Maybe we should pause well, that. Should we talk yeah. about should we talk about Heath Ledger a little bit? Yeah, I, I remember. I you know it's funny because I remember, I went to the the midnight showing too and remember uh-huh. being very excited, but also incredible. I wouldn't say skeptical because I really like Batman Begins, which had come out a couple years before. But you know, I my relationship with Heath Ledger, like a lot of people's, was kind of you know he was a a, a pretty cool guy who was in you know some okay ninety like I remember Knight's Tale and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah what was the one on the that was based on the the Shakespeare play uh, Ten Things yeah Ten, Ten Things, things I Hate About, about you. you yeah mostly yeah, a I, handsome kind of roguish maybe a little yeah. bit bohemian uh, like a, a weirdo but but I think pop culture in pop culture our relationship with the Joker at that point as a character. It, and this is something that I feel like we that's also interesting to talk about is post Heath Ledger, pre Heath Ledger, where, you know, the Joker was this sort of uh, prior to to Heath Ledger. I feel like the place he occupied in pop culture wasn't this agent of chaos. He wasn't this, you know, social id. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in the in the post 9-11 era, I feel like Joker in a lot of ways has come to symbolize um it manifests himself in social anxieties and like you know w- with with Heath Ledger's performance you know his mode you know he burns the mafia's money and in yeah. that in that famous parable that Michael Caine says about this uh you know this incident he had in the jungle where a thief was stealing rubies only to find that he had thrown them away and and you know the the famous line some people just want to watch the world burn criminals aren't complicated alfred 
We just need to figure out what he's after. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport. Because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. You know, I re- just remember how the world felt different, you know, in those in that decade after 9-11, where it felt like there there were forces of like good and evil. But some of the evil forces, some of the violence that was happening around the world, you just never couldn't really understand the motives. You know, it was it was an, an enemy that we couldn't understand. And I feel like the evolution to Joaquin Phoenix's uh, role as the Joker, which, you know, came 10 years, you know, just came out, you know, in the, in the, his recent take on the character. It's, it's, it's as dark as Heath Ledger's, but it also speaks to, like I said, some social anxieties of Mm -hmm. like the world is getting very complicated. And what if all of those complications manifested itself into a character and into a performance and, like like a lot of people, I think was skeptical. Could Heath Ledger pull something like that off? Sure. And he, re- I mean, obviously this this is the the coldest take ever. But he disappeared into the character in a way that you know go down in movie history. Still really hard to see Heath Ledger behind all of that when you watch it. It's it's still it's still very difficult to place the face I have of Heath Ledger with the Joker. It's uh, they don't really. I don't really see the two of them together i think where um i think that some of the and and i i'm i'm surprised that and wish something that that i that that i think really elevates this movie that isn't talked about as much is the dignity and humanity that it gives to the criminals to the inmates there at the very end in the third act uh the famous scene with the two boats right and uh, and Tiny Lister is the is the big scary guy at the very end who takes yeah. the remote and throws checks it out the side of the wind and and uh, and he sort of humbles Gotham's elite by being the first one. That's pretty rare. Uh, yeah. Batman Begins showed criminals as being this group of people who are always just one step away from a prison riot, and as soon as the doors were blown up the cells, they took to the streets and started spreading violence, which is a very lazy and sort of unfortunate depiction of what people behind bars can be. And it was cool that the Dark Knight, I think, pivoted away from that and corrected that and uh, to uh, in order to make something that felt way more humanizing. And I wish that that scene was talked about as much as the why so serious scenes, because that's a really cool and very counterintuitive to big Hollywood filmmaking direction to go with uh, depictions of inmates. I've been meaning to, I was looking forward to, because we were going to be having uh, early next year, we were going to have the, the new Batman, the Robert Pattinson Batman yeah. movie directed by Matt Reeves come out. That's going to be a little delayed now, obviously. 
Uh, but I'm saving a full Batman rewatch for uh, we'll, we'll take it from the we'll take it from all the way back to uh, to Michael Keaton to Mike and just Keaton, plow yeah. through, suffer through. It'll be there'll be some high highs, but there'll be some low lows in there. Yeah, too. you'll have that Clooney Batman to contend with. All right, uh, <laughs> so you have uh, 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 Dunkirk number five. That's right. Batman Begins at number four. Dark Knight at number three. Tyler, what is your number two uh, favorite? Your second favorite? Number two Nolan. that I went for, and maybe this is a hot take too. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe they're all hot takes. Maybe yeah. I'm just so good. The hotter I'm, the take, the better. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm just the frog who sits in the boiling pot of water and don't realize <laughs> just how just how edgy I'm getting out here. Sizzling they are. Bring yeah. it on, cancel culture. I'm not afraid of you. Uh, number two, I went with the prestige. Oh, dude. Okay, this is this was actually my number five, and I'm okay. I'm glad it made both of our list. Uh, I have a I have some thoughts, but why don't why don't you go ahead and, and tell me why you ranked it? Because number two is very high for the prestige. Number two is really like. high, yeah. and I think there's a little bit of personal like like I, I this was probably the first time I'd seen uh, I had seen other Nolan movies. Um, I'd seen Insomnia, and yeah. uh, uh, and I'd seen Memento, uh, oh, I can't maybe. remember the name of it now. Memento? Memento, and I'd seen yeah. Memento. But this is probably the first time Nolan really popped on my radar as like, oh, I really want to follow this guy's career because this is such an interesting movie. And I, the final moment, the final revelation of all of the various Hugh Jackmans in their, in their little like birthing tubes at the yeah. very end before it goes into the Tom York song was a, was a real moment for me. And I think what, I think, that one the reason it ranked it so high it's the one where i think all of christopher nolan's tricks are really utilized to the, their full possible extent everything that he does so well is put on the forefront and some of the yeah. things that he doesn't always do well are pretty absent for the most part from the movie other than maybe uh we could use maybe a little more humanizing moments with some of the women which has always been a struggle of his yeah. but for the 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 time shifts the polling the the pulling the rug out from under the feet of the narrative over and over and over to recontextualize what you thought, you know, it all happens so seamlessly and yeah. with so much momentum and, and so much forward. There's so much, uh, it's so propelling throughout. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the experience of just be buckling and being along for the ride. Well, and part of the reason I think it needs to make any list of Christopher Nolan films is because, you know, there, there's a very famous scene where Michael Caine explains the mechanics of an effective magic trick. Mm -hmm. There is the pledge, which is where you show something. So it can be a coin, a deck of cards, a bird. It's something ordinary, something that the audience can recognize. So there's the pledge, there's the turn. It's taking something ordinary and turning it turning it you know, ex extraordinary. It's the big explosions on stage. But when you look at, you know, and then you have the prestige, the final, and that's the mind-blowing twist ending, mm. you know, giving the audience something they didn't expect. Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, a deck of cards, a bird, or a man. shows you this object. Perhaps he asks you to inspect it. To see that it is indeed real. Yeah, an old one. No. But of course, it probably isn't. Oh, did you think you're going? Oh, the bloody axe, you fool!
The second act is called The Turf. Magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now, you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. Because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. Want to be fooled. But you wouldn't clap yet, because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. That's why every magic trick has a third act. The hardest part. The part we call the prestige. Michael Caine walks through the mechanics of that as he shows the magic trick, but then you also realize this is this is the playbook that Christopher Nolan uses his whole time. The 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 pledge, there's always a pledge in this movie, something you're familiar with, like it like dreams or Batman or space travel or a, a war movie. The turn is his giant set pieces. The, you know what I mean? Like that kind of catch, but, but in magic in stage magic and, and his films, the turn is misdirection. Actually, you know, you're distracted by the set because by the, by the set pieces and, and the big scenes and you, and you, and the, the prestige, the payoff you in Christopher Nolan movie, when he nails it, he nails it because he, he brought you in with those same mechanics. And I feel like, that's I feel like this is the movie where he really realized he could do that, you know. And I think the the the, the I think there's a lot of really obvious to the to maybe more obvious to the audience than they are to the actual filmmaker, to Nolan himself, uh, that this movie is about him, that this is this yeah. is autobiographical thematically to what he's willing to give up for his own craft, for his yeah. own and how much he's willing to go in the tank for it. Because you can't make a movie about magic um that feels this personal and for him as a non-magician that feels this personal and this dialed in to what its characters are going through. Because even as these guys grow obsessive about, about being magicians, you know, yeah, this is, yeah. this is, these are magic tricks. Yeah. There is no reason that it should be driving these men to, to like murder and deception. And by the end, uh, an incredibly bizarre uh, experiment, which we need to talk a little bit about the fact that at one point in this movie, uh, 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 Nikolai Tesla, played by David, David Bowie, Bowie. Yeah. invents a machine that can create a carbon copy of a full person, of a, of a human being. And that's, it's not explained. It is nope. not, they don't spend any time trying to just tell you how this, there's no, there's no mosquitoes in amber that we use mm -hmm. to justify this little, it is just something that happens and he expects you to just be okay with that. Yeah. And it works. Like it, it, it doesn't matter. Who cares? It, it, it does. It, 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 the mystery. It, it's it's the Joker origin story, right? It's better if you don't know. 
it's better if it's a mystery because th- that that almost makes it more sinister in a way. You know, it makes it more sinister, and it uses the power of filmmaking <laughs> to its full potential. Nothing is more boring to me in a movie than when they try to explain hyperspace or yeah. time travel. I, I do not care. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm in, yeah, I get know? it. I get I'm it. Here. It's gonna happen. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, bu- I'm buckled in. We're and gonna go get the Nolan, Infinity Stones. I'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Christopher Nolan understands that and doesn't seem yeah. to be bothered by that. And uh, and obviously he does that again to far more, uh, to a much greater extent with uh, with my number one movie, which you've probably guessed by now. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say your number one is Inception. That's correct, yeah. All right, let's, I, again, it's in my top three. Uh, okay. uh, Inception is number three uh, for me. I want to hear, uh, I want to hear why it's number one. I mean, I, I, I feel like for as good as this movie is, uh, you know, uh, and for as interesting as the just the the premises, you know, it's a heist movie that takes place in dreams with incredible set pieces. So, you know, some of the most memorable Are the best uh, set pieces, in yeah, recent years, yeah. But I also feel like it's a deeply flawed movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still enjoyed it. That's why it's number three, not high. Why did you put it number one? So I agree that it's deeply flawed and I'd be interested. We should talk about its flaws. because I think most people are aware of why people like the movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that, so there's a few things that I think are, are very impressive about, uh, about how Inception works. The first one is the opening sequence, which I think is maybe next to the dark Knight is Nolan's best opening sequence in yeah. a movie because he plunges you right in to how this world works on the deep end of the pool. Like he yeah. starts off with the dream within a dream uh, uh, framing device, which is already advanced mechanics for yeah. the invention that he's using. And they yeah. don't, they really don't slow down enough for you to, to catch up until quite a bit later, all of what was going on. But, and I've talked to people who didn't understand it, I didn't have a problem with it the first time I watched it, but I, you know, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just that much smarter than the average viewer. But I really do feel like he does a pretty good job of helping you keep up with it. I yeah. think that it does get a little bit explainy with uh, with Ellen Page. Yeah, uh, she she's used as an audience surrogate probably too much, and that would be a, a significant weakness, especially in the second act where she just keeps asking questions over and over about what exactly is going on. But the visuals of the movie are so impressive and so interesting. And it it works. What works for me over and over again is DiCaprio's performance as this, uh, as this bereaved husband who misses his kids and the, the device that's used to make you care about the final heist, getting back with his kids. Obviously, there are some log- logistical holes with that, for sure. Yeah. But it really does keep, did keep me invested in it. Um, I, I was a sucker for the, final, for the final moment of him returning and of him seeing yeah. them again. I cared about that a lot. And I think that's when Nolan's at his best he can do all these big flashy technical set pieces and filmmaking devices and IMAX cameras, but a a really warm family story that's at the heart of this one is probably what elevated it to the top for me. And and I also love the guts to have an ambiguous ending, you know, like, I I mean, to me, that, that, it isn't easy, but, but again, like that's what made the movie so intriguing. And it, even like, 
and and I think it captured what people liked about the 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 framing of the movie is dreams. It's you know dreams when you're when you're having one and they feel real. It is hard to distinguish what is real and what is not. And at the end of the day. You, you know what that movie kind of plays with is does it even really matter you know is a yeah. lived experience versus an imagined one all that materially different if you feel the same things you know and i think that it really does feature one of zimmer's better scores yeah. uh who, who also gets that one became sort of a, i think it sort of stereotyped him as the 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 bombastic brom brom guy yeah, the, yeah. like that guy but but, it, but it's, it's effective it's very effective and it's best moments are some of the quieter ones, some of the yeah. little piano notes and, and little melodies. I, I think that really sell that movie on a, in a really cool, uh, in a really cool memorable way. So many great set pieces. Joseph Gordon yeah. Levitt running through the tele through the spinning hallway will go yeah, down. It's classic. Forever, yeah. It's forever. like the Jamiroquai video of yeah. <laughs> you know of two thousand blockbusters. Like, oh, that's cool, man. You know. And the final the final flex of going through third, fourth, fifth moments of a dream is all, yeah. obviously like very effective and, and very until this very cerebral way of of pulling of uh, of making a third act work. We can talk about some of the reasons that it doesn't totally work for you. Cause I probably don't disagree with any of the, yeah, I mean, I mean, like any of your knocks against it, I probably don't disagree. I mean, I think it plays into some of Nolan's like worst attributes. And we talked about this earlier, like he, he isn't great at writing compelling, you know, it, he doesn't give a lot of the female characters a lot to do in a mm. lot of movies. And I feel like this movie kind of showcases that I, I, I feel like, as fun as the mechanics of the dream world and the and the playing with the passages of time are, I feel like it does get too in the weeds with it. You know, like it, it, it's it's so proud of the puzzle aspect of the movie mm-hmm. that it underplays, you know, some of the deeper character driven elements that keep you emotionally connected. Like yeah. I, I don't have I yeah I mean the 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 thing with Leonardo DiCaprio's character and, and his kids. I, I It's not that I didn't care about it, but I didn't care as much as I cared about, hey, do you see Joseph Gordon-Levitt running around a rotating room? <laughs> like, he really, I, in my opinion, and, and again, I can see why it's number one, and, and the movie still holds up. I watched it again recently. But in my opinion, there is so little emphasis on the uh, emotional stakes um, compared to the visual stakes of these dream heists that I, I felt like that is one element that could be improved. What do you see as the primary flaws of that movie? I think that, that Maul in general is sort of a, she, she's such a good plot device, but she feels like a plot, like a plot device. Exactly. You you know, she does feel it's hard for me to, I always get a little bit, um, 
I, I get a little bit taken out of a movie when somebody starts, when Leonardo DiCaprio or anybody starts talking about a love that transcends all time and boundaries and space. Like I'm, you know, I'm married. I love my wife very much, yeah, but, yeah. but the way that sometimes filmmakers and especially Nolan can talk about love. It's like, well, I just think you're reading a little too much Lord Alfred Tennyson now. Yeah, Cause this doesn't yeah. feel like a, this feels like a very convenient type of love for this plot. But I do love some of the sequences, especially with the elevator where Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio go down to the basement to see the memories that he's uh, that he's kept down there at the bottom, which of course, as we know, resulted in in Maul killing herself. Yeah. Uh, so I think that I I, I wish that um, I think Marion Cotillard does great work with what she's given, but I yeah. wish there was more there. Uh, and then, like I said, I think it's a, I think it gets a little explainy, but some of the interplay between uh, Tom Hart, first time I was, that Tom Hardy was really on my radar in a big way, and yeah. he has so much fun with the with what he's given to do there. I was really glad to see him brought in to do more for Nolan later on, and uh, I, I think that the highs of the movie overcome its flaws, which are significant, uh, but it overcomes them enough to be my number one Nolan movie. It's, it's, and, and like, it's not unfair because it is, pro- you know, probably his most memorable and uh, maybe outside the dark. That, night, that's but. probably true. It was, and it was, it, I would say this, it, it was one of the most, the trailer for that movie. I remember it. I remember yeah. how that, that like landed and this, yeah. this idea, what is going on in this movie? Which I felt again with the, with Tenet. Tenet. Yeah, uh, exactly. It's a very similar, which I am very excited about. It's cool to see him back in that, in that, that vibe of what looks like, who knows? Uh, I should tell you, I actually did see Tenet and came back in time. To tell you, per some of the <laughs> you mechanics pulled of tenet, tenet. You pulled Tenet time to you. You didn't travel to Tenet. Uh, yeah, you it, put it, the bullets back one. into the barrel. That's my number up. one. Yeah. I should say that's my number one favorite Tenet. <laughs> okay, so so Tyler, that's that's your top. R- real quick, read through your top five real quick. It was... You bet. Uh, so we started at Dunkirk, uh, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Prestige, and Inception. All right, fair fair choices. Uh, I I had I had the prestige at number five, which we talked right. about. Number four was not on your list, and I understand and I do understand why. And I have a, I just have a soft spot for the movie um, Interstellar yeah. with Matthew McConaughey. And the reason I have it in the top five is again, even though these movies are you know written long before they they come out and in production for a long time. Um, it spoke to two things that I feel like people that, that really were emotionally resonant. Right. And one was ecological, um, you know, doom, doom, you know, that this feeling of humanity has, has squandered its resources. And, and, and this, you know, that then the only hope is, is, is a literal, like a moonshot, moonshot thinking. And, and it also captured, and obviously this is a sci-fi version of space travel, but it, I wasn't alive during the space race, but I do feel like this movie captures the hope and wonder of space travel. Mm. And I'm not even like a space travel movie guy, you know, but I do feel like this, this, the stakes feel so high. Um, and the, the visuals are so beautiful and it feels so sort of American in a bad way and a good way in mm. that, you know, yeah, consumption sure. calls the, you know, the villain in the film 
It, I mean, I we don't have to talk about the Matt Damon twist, which I actually didn't feel like was was all that needed. But like the villain in the film was our own consumption, right? And mm-hmm. the, but the hero in the film was our own innovation and courage, uh, you know, which manifests in Matthew McConaughey's character. It's like we've forgotten who we are, Tom. Explorers, pioneers, not caretakers. When I was a kid, it felt like they made something new every day. Some gadget or idea, like every day was Christmas. But six billion people, just try to imagine that. And every last one of them trying to have it all. This world isn't so bad. And Tom will do just fine. You're the one who doesn't belong. Born 40 years too late or 40 years too early. My daughter knew it, God bless her. And your kids know it, especially Murph. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. The other thing I liked is the way it played with time and relativity. Well, perfect. And yeah. it, it just had some really cool scenes. But it didn't make your top five. Why aren't you as hot on Interstellar as I am? Do you think there's a distinction for people who, who loved versus people who didn't Interstellar uh, in terms of whether or not they have kids? That, quite possibly. I, say, I've, that, I wonder about that. I do. Because it's I, such I, a it's such a dad movie. Because you you you've got two children, I have none, uh, and I I could see that movie resonating more to uh, to somebody who had children than somebody who yeah. doesn't. Well, and I feel like it's it's the the emotional resonance is so much more powerful than that same dynamic, those same stakes mm-hmm. with what we were talking about with um, Inception. Like uh, I sure. felt, yeah. you know, like. Um, but I also the other th- thing I wanted to, even though they kind of telegraphed the twists at the end with the Tesseract, yeah, sure. I think I, I loved. Yeah, I, I, A Wrinkle in Time was one of my favorite books as a kid, uh-huh. and you know, to have a visual representation of the Tesseract was just really cool. Um, okay. Um, all right. So Interstellar, I had it number four. We already talked about Inception, which is my number three. Dark Knight is my number two. This is going to seem like a hot take, but I got to be honest. I I didn't think it was that hot. Um, uh, can you, Tyler, what do you think my number one is? Oh, and man, this isn't is me it, trying to be contrarian. This is, I, no. I, I legitimately feel like I can defend this. Is it, let's see. Can I get two guesses? Two guesses. All right. Is it Rises? It's not Rises. Is it Memento? It is Memento. It is Memento. I, I did like oh, Dark Knight. I did like Dark Knight Rises, but not as much as the other Batman films. Uh-huh. And here is why Memento is my number one. If people haven't seen Memento, it's probably it's one of his probably most underseen films. Following a lot of people haven't seen. Which following is the, yeah down there, and, it, yeah. And, I, and I got nothing against Memento or. or or anyone, but Guy Pierce certainly phenomenal yeah. in that movie. Oh, yeah. And so for people who haven't seen Memento, you know, for a lot of these, you don't really need to explain the plot because everybody's seen Dark Knight and, um, and the other movies. But, you know, Memento is, is, is a small story compared to the scope of some of the other Christopher Nolan movies. But it is about a guy who has suffered some, a head injury 
that uh, it, it makes him unable, uh, incapable of forming new memories. And so he gets about 15 minutes until he forgets everything up until a certain point in his life. Now, the certain point in his life that he has memories up to was, you know, this evening where his, his, his wife was killed and he suffered this injury. And so he is on this path to get just to avenge the death of his wife, uh, but he can't form new memories. It's an interesting story and it has this noir feel. Uh, but the reason why I feel like it, it is, it is, I put it number one is because it, it does what other Christopher Nolan movies did on a bigger scale on a very small one, which is it used a, a narrative framing device that was, it was so innovative and, and, and just so perfectly executed that you, you really understood that you're watching a special filmmaker at work. So how he did it is most of the film is, is shown backwards. So when the main character is running from a bad guy, you don't know who the bad guy is, but the character doesn't either. Like he has him, like he can't form new memories. So he forgets who is chasing him. And as the viewer, you have the same confusion and chaos as he does the entire film. I, I, there are a few films that I've seen execute a, 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 a high wire tightrope act like this, which is telling a story backwards so that you put the audience in the same position of the character, which is you don't know what's happening because you'd have no memory of it as effectively as this movie. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, is this movie costs uh, under five million dollars to make. That's like the craft services budget for <laughs> Dark Knight or whatever. You know what I mean? But. You know, a lot of people can make a great movie for $200 million. There aren't a lot of filmmakers who can make, a, you know, an incredible movie, you know, with, with five. Yeah, I mean, there there are, but not to the degree that it's like, hey, make this a real mind bender. Make it have memorable set pieces and make this, you know, something that people have never seen before. And he pulled it off. And it's, you know, I, I think... I think that's what makes this movie so impressive. So impressive. It's a deeply watchable movie, like you said. It, it Guy Pierce is in it, and even if you're not a fan of sort of the the twisty, uh, interesting kind of narrative framings of Christopher Nolan movies, um, I I feel like it works as just the noir. It works as mm -hmm. this sort of you know hard boiled you know L.A. story of of vengeance, murder, and crime, but. It's told in, in in a really interesting way, but Tyler, it didn't it didn't crack your top five. What are your it thoughts? Didn't, on it didn't not not because I have any significant knocks against it. What I what I like about Nolan movies that I think even the the the, the this that Memento didn't have is a thematic resonance, an emotional thematic resonance that really lands to either in either a social context, like a, it's a social commentary or just familial, uh, something yeah. that's a comment on, on family or the interior life. I don't feel, I didn't get that from Memento. Um, yeah. And uh, as a piece, as a, as craft, it's fantastic as yeah. a, as just a piece of filmmaking. I think it's really well done for such a complicated movie to make a, a, a total A plus. It just didn't have the emotional resonance that he's really tried for. And I think everything he's done since then, um, even the ones that I don't think have worked so have worked so well, have really tried to have real heart 
in them yeah. uh, it hit at a heart level and uh, memento just didn't do it for me which is why it's not in my top five and, and that and that's fair i mean that was sort of my knock on uh you know inception uh yeah, so, sure. so I, it's sure. definitely like kind of which the, did hit the, for me which is interesting because i really yeah. feel like that one did uh at the end it, it gets me it gets me in the feels yeah yeah well hey that's not that's not unfair i mean and that's what interstellar did for me you know uh-huh. is is when, when he finally spoiler alert makes it back and in and he's he's aged because he's moving through time at a different speed than his daughter but you know you know allowing that that i felt like that did work for me but it's interesting mm-hmm. that we have kind of different perspectives on the emotional resonance yeah. of this so, so what do we so are we uh are we three out of five for our top we're three five out of list. five. For three out of five, that's not too bad. Those are, those those takes aren't too. No, high. I think yeah, yeah, considering you've got like what a total of ten Nolan movies, maybe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, well, Tyler, man, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's good. Always good to always good to, to talk about these with you, Jesse. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on. And hey, make sure if you're listening to this, uh, you know the drill. If you listen to the podcast, everyone asks you the same thing, but it does help. Rank, review, subscribe, tell your friends, do whatever. And uh, uh, you can you can send your contrarian uh, uh, Christopher Nolan uh, angry hate mail to at Tyler Huckabee on Twitter. He is a great Twitter follow, even if you are disagreeing with his favorite <laughs> movies. Tyler, thanks, buddy. Thanks, Jesse.